Cameron. I'm a professor of political science and the chief executive officer of the US Study Center at the University of Sydney. And we'll commence proceedings by acknowledging the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples who are the traditional custodians of the Canberra era and will pay respect to their elders, past and present, and indeed of all Australia's Indigenous peoples. The mission of the US Study Center, of course, is to deepen Australia's understanding of the United States and of Australia's relationship with the United States. We do that in four substantive domains, reflecting the breadth and the depth of that relationship. Trade and investment, innovation and entrepreneurship, society, politics and culture, and foreign policy and defence. And tonight's report obviously fits firmly and squarely in that latter domain. In just a minute, I'll hand over the author of the report, Ashley Townsend, the director of the Centre's program in foreign policy and defence. And Ashley will summarise the report's conclusions and recommendations. And after that, Lisa Murray from the Australian Financial Review will lead a panel discussion with Ashley and Ashley's co-authors, Brendan Thomas Noon and Matilda Stewart. And then Lisa will moderate some Q&A and then we'll have a drink <laughs> and a chat outside. But let me briefly set the stage for the report. While teaching political science at Stanford University uh, in the United States, we would take about one or two army officers into our PhD program each year. And I remember distinctly uh, in the early zero zeros, um, not long after 9-11, as the US military was deeply committing itself into Iraq and Afghanistan, one of our army PhD candidates, uh, someone um, experienced in the Western Pacific, noted to me, boy, oh boy, there's a lot of kit being moved away from Korea at the moment, and it ain't coming back. And that was in the early zero zeros, and there's been a lot of water under the bridge since, and indeed, with a speed that surprised a lot of us, the Trump administration produces canonical statements of American defense and foreign policy, unambiguously announcing that the United States considers itself to be in the midst of a new era of strategic competition, that the world is witnessing a return to great rivalry, and that the Indo-Pacific, Australia's backyard, is the strategic crucible of our age. And hence tonight's report, because a question so many Australians have is where is the follow through? Washington, it would seem, is unable to maintain focus on goal. Budget uncertainties fail to deliver a defence spending plan commensurate with the strategic ambition announced in those canonical documents of American thinking. The result, as this report argues, is an increasingly dangerous mismatch between America's strategic ambitions and its means. Ashley and the team go on to argue that in the absence of some difficult choices by the United States to either spend more or do less in the world, America will confront rising levels of strategic risk and hence the rub for us, destabilization in the Indo-Pacific. We're a US study center. We study the United States, but in Australia's interest, and that's where this report lands. This is a report not just done by an, a bunch of academics at the University of Sydney with an interest in the United States. We study because we have Australia's interests at heart, and that's where this report 
all 120 pages of it land. This product, uh, the, this research rather, is a product of months of research and editing. I'm immensely proud of the team uh, for the work they've put together. Um, this is not regular tink, think tank fair. This is impeccably researched, 400 footnotes spanning those 120 pages. Um, months of work and editing. This began life as a study of American defense spending, but assumed greater significance as I think the team came to understand the strategic stakes um, at, uh, under, uh, in play here, and particularly that mandate we have to be producing research that serves Australia's national interest. We can't produce that research without the help of some, uh, some of whom are in the room tonight. Uh, first of all, the Australian Department of Defence, the grants program that's run out of the Strategic Policy Branch, uh, gives us the wherewithal uh, to undertake uh, major research efforts of, 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 of this type and supporting events in particular. But critically, we have support from the University of Sydney. We also have support from two corporate sponsors that I'll single out tonight as well that allow us to make the investments in the young people who are passionate about this subject matter and can dig in and do the hard analytical yards. Research of the sort you're about to hear summarised does not come on the cheap. It is done best when we can give job security to analysts who can then take the time to do it right because the stakes are very high. And I'm very proud that they have done such a great job and they have got it right. And so I will single out uh, Talis, uh, United States Study Center. I thank them. Um, you may be joined. There's Gary Dawson. Thank you, Gary. Um, and, and Northrop Grumman as well. And I think Mike Gallagher from Northrop might be joining us uh, later tonight as well. But thank you to them. Again, as I said, I, I can't, as a CEO of the center, I can't stress this enough to know we can make commitments, full-time employment to people that can do this sort of work for us enormously valuable and a precious thing in the ecosystem of Australian think tank life. That's enough about the big picture. Ashley, please uh, come and tell us about this impressive piece of work you and the team have put together. Thanks, Simon, and uh, thanks to all of you for coming here this evening. I understand it's a cold evening in Canberra as well, but we've been called up here since our flight was two hours delayed this afternoon. So I hope it's not too cold when we venture out later. Uh, and again, let me reiterate, uh, Simon, our thanks to Northrop Grumman, to TALIS, and to the Department of Defense here in Australia for their ongoing support, not just of the US Study Center, but specifically of the Foreign Policy and Defense Program. America's defense strategy uh, in the Indo-Pacific is in the throes of a crisis. And this crisis is, and has been described by more than just us here tonight, as a, as a crisis of strategic insolvency, where the ends of Washington's global strategy are increasingly out of step with its available strategic means. Facing an increasingly contested regional security landscape, the proliferation of global security commitments, and structurally constrained defense resources, the United States military is no longer assured of its ability to uphold a favorable balance of power in the Indo-Pacific by itself. This simple fact cuts to the heart of the sustainability of our regional strategic order, really for the best part of the last 70 years, has been underwritten by America's largely uncontested military power and its all-domain military dominance. 
much of this time, large numbers of United States forward deployed forces have been sufficient to, def to deter aspiring regional hegemons. Uh, they've also been sufficient to maintain regional rules uh, for the most part, and they've also maintained robust alliances and partnerships in the region, which have further um, advanced America's strength and regional reach. But today, none of this can be taken for granted. Spurred on by decades of strong economic growth, we all know that China is becoming more powerful, more capable, and more formidable in the Indo-Pacific. It is now capable of holding at risk many US bases, assets, and forward deployed forces in the region, not least those of other regional allies and partners. And its objective appears to be to lock the United States out of the Western Pacific. Although the past 18 years, the past several years have seen renewed efforts by the Department of Defense in the United States to prioritize the requirements for great power competition with China, and that's enshrined now as a key objective of the Trump administration's 2018 national defense strategy, Washington has so far been unable, some would say unwilling, to sufficiently focus its armed forces on this task or deliver a defense spending plan that is commensurate with its global and regional responsibilities and interests. The result, as Simon says, is an increasingly worrying mismatch between American strategy and resources, and one that, if unchecked, could jeopardize the future of the Indo-Pacific region. But don't take our word for it. Uh, as the congressionally mandated National Defense Strategy Commission uh, put it last year, which is a panel um, of bipartisan defense experts in the United States, America's military superiority, or the hard power backbone of its global influence and national security, voted to a dangerous degree making it possible that the United States could lose the next state versus state war that it fights. The focus of the United States Study Center special report, which we're releasing tonight, is to analyze the drivers and the implications of America's crisis of defense, and to look at that across strategic, political, budgetary, and military domains. But it's not a defeatist report. Many in the United States Department of Defense are working hard now to implement the national defense strategy in order to strengthen America's conventional military position in the Indo-Pacific, albeit under largely difficult fiscal, strategic, and political circumstances. There is also a clear momentum in Washington behind America's willingness to remain strategically engaged as a military counterweight to China in the Indo-Pacific. But once again, notwithstanding the continued pull of its other global interests and responsibilities and the spec contingencies in the Middle East. The overall takeaway of this report is that Washington can't do this alone anymore. And this is a fact that was recognized by the former um, acting Secretary of Defense Patrick Shanahan at the Shangri-La Dialogue this year, where he more or less pleaded with the region to step up their own commitments, our own commitments, to maintaining conventional deterrence in the Indo-Pacific. Maintaining a stable and ideally favorable uh, balance of power in the region is not only in Australia's interests and is not only enshrined in Australian government documents like the Foreign Policy White Paper, but it's an increasingly urgent priority for action in light of America's strategic overstretch and China's increasingly assertive regional strategy. And as such, our primary recommendation in this report is to encourage Australia to do a lot more to advance a strategy of collective defense by first and foremost rebalancing our defense equities away from to the Indo-Pacific and undertaking a number of significant and often forward-leaning steps to ensure Australia's resilience, posture, and capacity for collective action in the region is intact and effective in an era of growing strategic competition. 
I want to briefly highlight um, some of the major elements of this report and to look at the multifaceted uh, and enduring causes of America's defense crisis. And I'm going to preview just a couple of the, of the images that are in this report. They're all available online, and for those of you who are interested in hard copies, we're more than happy to share those just as soon as they're available. Um, but we do have a very rich, um, let me see here, we do have a very rich um, set of images and data in this report which we would like and hope is instructive for all of you. First, at the strategic level, Washington's commitment to an expansive liberal order building agenda, including the last decades of war in the Middle East, has really dangerously overstretched its defense resources at the same time of, as America's global power has been contracted. This has left the US armed forces ill-prepared for the kind of high-intensity deterrence and warfighting tasks that would typify a confrontation with China. And while the Pentagon is now trying to refocus on preparations for future great power wars through modernization, procurement of high-end capabilities, and so forth, uh, an outdated superpower mindset that still persists within Washington, particularly in the foreign policy establishment, continues to limit the United States' ability to make hard choices, to scale back its other global commitments, and to make the sorts of strategic and military trade-offs that are required to genuinely prioritize the universal system. by developments in the regional military balance. Having studied carefully the so-called American way of war, premised as it is on power projection and all domain dominance, China has de deployed a formidable array of precision strike missiles and other counter-intervention systems designed to undercut American primacy in the region. This is not new. A growing number of defense analysts in Australia and the US worry now that Beijing may be able to quickly use limited force uh, within it's what's often called its area denial or anti-access bubbles, uh, as you can see here on, on this map, um, uh, to achieve a fait accompli victory before the United States can respond. So, for example, seizing a strategically or political valuable piece of territory in the first island chain, such as Taiwan in a worst-case scenario, but more likely islands along the Japanese archipelago or strategically significant places in maritime Southeast Asia. This, in turn, could well sow doubt infectious doubt about commitments in the region and its ability and capacity to defend allied interests, in turn risking the integrity and the cohesion of wider alliance and partner networks, to say nothing of the strategic gains that such a fate of complete would afford Beijing. The threat of this outcome has obliged the Pentagon to focus on rebuilding conventional military capabilities of a kind required to deny Chinese aggression in the first place. And this places a premium on sophisticated air and maritime assets, survivable logistics and communications, new stocks of munitions and other costly changes, many of which have been deferred for quite some time as strategic priorities have lay in the Middle East. At the domestic political level, meanwhile, Congress has struggled to deliver annual defense budgets commensurate with its ever-expanding demands of American global strategy. The impact of the Budget Control Act uh, legislative caps on defense spending over the past decade, more in a moment, coupled with repeated funding delays and fiscal uncertainty, has hobbled America's ability to respond to a deteriorating strategic landscape in the Indo-Pacific. Growing polarization between Republicans and Democrats over national spending priorities, coupled with looming economic challenges and a ballooning national debt, 
are also likely to continue to impede the political consensus that is required to achieve sufficient real growth in defence expenditure to implement the 2018 National Defence Strategy. At the same time, above inflation growth in key accounts within the defence budget, such as personnel expenses or the cost of maintaining worn-out hardware, will continue to leave the Pentagon with fewer resources to grow the military and acquire uh, new weapon systems. All of this has resulted in an atrophying force that is not sufficiently ready, equipped or postured for its conventional deterrence in the Indo-Pacific. Indeed, the combination of two decades of near-continuous combat operations, budget dysfunction, aging equipment and the rising cost of advanced military systems has severely impacted the quality and quantity of America's high-end armed forces. This has led to the 2016-17 crisis of military readiness, which is only now partially resolved, and a bank-up of deferred modernization priorities, which must now be simultaneously addressed to prepare the joint force for strategic competition, placing once again additional strain on a defense budget that is only beginning to recover from a long period of austerity. While America's military services have started to implement some of these much-needed changes, uh, um, particularly to their capabilities, posture and operational concepts, it is far from clear that the Pentagon currently has the budgetary capacity or the strategic focus more broadly to deliver these in a sufficiently robust way. Now, none of this is to say that Washington is a paper tiger. It still provides over the world's largest and most sophisticated military, spending more than the next eight countries combined. And it is also likely to continue to supply the largest elements of any military counterweight to China in the Indo-Pacific. But it does mean that the United States' long-standing ability to uphold a regional balance of power by itself uh, will face mounting and ultimately insurmountable challenges. Providing strategic real estate for Washington may no longer be enough. So Australia should be deeply concerned about the state of the US Armed Forces and the strategic predicament in the Indo-Pacific. But in order to realize our shared defense objectives in the face of these challenges, Canberra should not defect, but rather should bolster its resilience and independence capabilities and increase its security cooperation with Washington and other like-minded regional partners in order to advance its regional defense. Such a strategy builds on the current direction of Australian strategic policy, but is somewhat distinct insofar as it would place a much sharper priority on the Indo-Pacific region and on Australian efforts to independently and collectively prepare for high-end warfighting contingencies and collective deterrence roles. The overall objective of all of this would be defensive and would be to dissuade China and Chinese adventurism and maintain a collective regional balance of power. Some of the recommendations that we outline in the paper and we'll no doubt return to in a moment include the following. Australia should and is in a position to credibly contribute uh, towards capability aggregation and collective deterrence uh, alongside capable regional partners, including the United States and Japan. Second, Australia and the United States should take a look at their alliance coordination mechanisms to focus much more on strengthening regional deterrence objectives and implementing them at an operational level. Third, the United States, uh, Australia rather, and the United States should rebalance their defense resources and priorities from the Middle East to the Indo-Pacific. Fourth, Australia should establish new and expand existing 
high-end military exercises with allies and partners in order to develop, but also to demonstrate, new operational concepts for Indo-Pacific contingencies. And fifth, although there are more in the report, um, Australia should consider acquiring robust land-based strike and denial capabilities and improve its regional posture, its infrastructure and its networked logistics, including in Northern Australia. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you again for coming this evening. I look forward to our panel discussion now and I look forward to fielding your questions uh, in a moment. Thank you. Certainly sobering reading this report, a strategy in unprecedented crisis, an atrophying force, a defence budget that's unpredictable and inadequate, and a, uh, the US military no longer having primacy in the region. So, you know, just a simple question, how worried should we be? And as you go around and brief people about this report, um, what level of concern are you going to take to those briefings? I think one of the key points um, to bear in mind here is that this is not just a concern of us or the concern of Australian um, defence watchers or even American defence watchers. This is a concern that's shared in the region. And for some time now, we've seen in the US defence establishment uh, a growing number of, let's say, people focused on regional policy take a greater interest in the US defence budget. And its, and its shortfalls and the price that it has inflicted on American military capacity. So this is a serious problem. Uh, you might remember uh, a couple of years ago in 2017, there were a number of collisions in the Indo-Pacific um, that, according to subsequent analyses, uh, were the result of um, a shortening of training timelines, um, an over-deployment of too few capabilities globally, of a force that was too small to sustain that. That's a real problem. Mm. And I think the real nub of it is that unless we do have the strength of will to, and by we I mean Australia and the United States, uh, to lower our ambition in other parts of the world, as I think many in the Pentagon behind the National Defence Strategy would put it, to lower our ambition and accept greater degree of perhaps strategic and operational risk in places like the Middle East, in order to focus on what matters. And Australia is the Indo-Pacific, and for the United States is, at the very least, the Indo-Pacific and, in short order, Europe and the spectre of Russia, uh, the vision of the world. Unless we have that strength of will, mm. um, the problems that are simmering but not hot in the Indo-Pacific won't be prepared for for 10 or 20 years down the track. But as this report comes out, Australia is being asked to do the opposite, really. We're being asked to um, join the US-led mission to protect ships in the Straits of Hormuz. Should Canberra do it? Or is this the issue um, that, based on your report, that you're saying we should draw a line and, and, and bring resources back to this region? That's my personal opinion, and I know we're in a room of many people who may not share this, uh, but absolutely, I don't think that it is in Australia's interest to be drawn into further engagements in the Middle East. Now, there are many ways that the government uh, could treat a request, a request that's already come. It doesn't necessarily need to send you know, naval assets over there. It could send personnel, for example, and, and, and treat that request in, much, uh, in a much lighter touch. Um, but I think the, the broader issue is really how much have we done, what are we still doing, and is it in our strategic interest? 
Since 9-11 until the end of 2018, according to Australian government budgetary statistics, we spent uh, more than, uh, uh, now just under half of our annual defence budget, and that's spending on operations. Uh, in that same period of time, and for obvious reasons, given the absence of, for the most part, conflict in the Indo-Pacific outside of the Philippines, um, we spent less than $4 billion in the Indo-Pacific. Now, what you spend and where you spend it is meaningless if you have enough and if you're achieving things that matter. Um, but the wear and tear on our forces in the Middle East is considerable. We have now um, the best part of 2,000 troops still stationed over there. Australia clearly has endured the Middle East, but we need to ask whether that level of commitment for that period of time is sustainable and what the opportunity costs are. Mm. I'm sure that our friends over in the Department of Defence here in Australia could find many useful things to do with the roughly $700 million per year that is spent on operations in the, Indo in, in the Middle East. Some of those, we think, ought to be tailored towards operationalizing deterrence through exercises, through um, patrols, through new posture, posture arrangements, although that would have to come from a different account. There are things that we can do with that money. And look, just one last point on that particular request. Um, diplomacy is the path that led us to the Iran deal, mm. and diplomacy ought to be our joint Australian and American preferred way of dealing with that crisis. It is an avoidable one, and it's one that can be nipped in the bud. Now, that's a difficult conversation to have with our allies, mm. particularly if they have their set on another objective. Um, but it's one that's in our interest, and I would wager that it's one that's in the interest of lots of American allies and partners in Asia. And so it's one that we ought to try and steward the United States towards, even if that is, frankly, a very difficult discussion. Um, Tilly, I want to ask you about the, the US defence budget because I know that's what you focus on in the report. Maybe just to start, you could outline in a bit more detail what some of the big challenges for the budget have been over the past decade. Yeah, so I think um, the US defence budget has faced kind of two major challenges over the past decade. Um, the first is constrained funding as a result of the Budget Control Act. And the second is kind of delayed or unpredictable funding as a result of political dynamics within Congress. So the Budget Control Act was a piece of legislation signed by President Obama in 2011 um, following the debt ceiling crisis of that year. Um, basically, it was a deficit reduction plan, um, spending caps on discretionary defense and discretionary non-defense parts of the budget over a 10-year period, so expiring in 2021. Um, for the Department of Defense, this has effectively meant a $539 billion um, loss in purchasing power between 2012 and 2019. Um, following sequestration in 2013, it's important to note that Congress has acted to kind of implement spending deals to raise the caps. Um, but this has created a lot of uncertainty for the Pentagon over what the budget top line at the end of each year is going to be. Often these spending deals are made at the very last minute and they could be a large spending deal or traditionally they've been quite, quite small. Um, the other thing that has made this all worse is also delays within the appropriations process in Congress more broadly. So Congress has kind of struggled to pass defence budgets on time and 2019 was the first defence budget passed on time um, over the last decade. Mm. So... Yeah. But earlier this year, as you mentioned, they did pass a significant increase for defence spending and it looks like they've averted um, you know, a government shutdown later this year. So could you say that things are looking up, that they're starting to get more consensus on this issue? 
Yeah, I mean, this, the deal this year and the, the deal in 2018 have kind of shown promising signs, um, but it's really a question of whether these promising signs can be now sustained over the long term and start to do undo some of the damage that has been done over the past decade. Mm. Um, also, in terms of thinking about whether such deals are going to be able to be made in the future, you've got other pressures that kind of lawmakers in Congress need to think about. You've got a rising national debt, growing deficits, kind of constraining the overall amount of money available um, to be spent on defence. Um, more Scott, the discretionary part of the budget is declining as an overall share. So mandatory spending, which is stuff on like social security, Medicare, that kind of stuff, is increasing as an overall share of the federal budget as and is projected to increase by a large extent in the future. So it's not really possible for defense to see an increase without kind of major reforms to that part of the budget, which is gonna be really politically difficult and will require kind of a lot of political capital being expended by lawmakers if they want to go down that path. Just a final thing I will add on that is kind of public support for defense spending is quite low at the moment. And when you, like if you look at opinion polls among the general American population, priorities like education score far higher than defense, which is near the bottom um, of the list of priorities for the American population. Given that, um, you know, in terms of the American public support for this, in an election year, what does that mean? Does that mean, um, and you, you Sarah might want to jump in here, but what does that mean? Can it, will Trump be able to generate support for this type of initiative or will it be harder? Yeah, I mean, I think if you think about the upcoming 2020 election, maybe looking at the Democratic side, I might, might talk a little bit about that. Um, you have, a, I think, 12 progressive groups sending an open letter to all the Democratic presidential candidates um, early last month, asking them to commit to decreasing the US defense budget by $200 billion per year. So I think it's definitely gonna be an issue coming up in the, in the 2020 elections, whether President Trump wants to kind of position himself in opposition to, to Democratic, whoever the presidential candidate yeah. is, um, we might see that. And the politics there. Yeah, I think it will very much depend on the politics. Mm. Um, Brendan, you focus a lot on the the, the defence forces um, and the budget instability, the two decades of near continuous combat, and what that has done and how that's eroded America's war fighting edge. Um, so, how ready? You know, you talked a lot about readiness in the report. How much has readiness been affected? And, and maybe you could talk about each of those, the Navy, Army, Marine Corps. Is there one particular area that's um, been more affected than another? Yeah, um, so as you said, there's been two decades of near continuous conflict in the Middle East um, across more or less all of those services that you uh, mentioned. Uh, and I sort of divide it up in the, in the report over land power, sea power, mm. air power. Um, What's happened is that, and, and of course, because I think they've been particularly impacted by by this trend, because actually their conflict or the conflicts they've been involved in actually go back further to conflict in uh, former Yugoslavia and uh, uh, NATO operations in Eastern Europe. Um, so what happens is that they, uh, the Air Force built a lot of aircraft in the 1970s and 1980s that are basically still in use today. 
So uh, they have been used and they were kind of set for a lot of recapitalization during the 2000s. So set obviously the wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, um, and the Middle Eastern conflict sort of took precedence within the budget. And those resources were devoted to um, maintaining sort of operations in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere. So the Air Force really almost, I want to say skipped, but a lot of modernization was deferred, put off. Mm. Right? We'll do it in five years. We'll do it in, in do it in a couple more years. So what happened is that the Air have have grown increasingly older. So the average age of the, uh, an Air Force airplane in the United States is 29 years old. Um, and that varies depending on airframe, but that's the general general trend. And what happens is that it becomes more expensive to maintain older equipment. And that steadily over time starts to eat up the part of the budget that uh, you keep devoting to maintain your older equipment. You obviously get less and less up to um, buy new stuff. Um, so readiness uh, has degraded in certain areas, and I should just just say readiness is sort of a fungible term and you kind of go to the United States and they'll kind of, people will have all these different um, definitions for readiness, but it essentially just means the a, a military unit's ability to perform a specific mission or role or a series of missions or, or, or um, operations. And, and as Ash mentioned in some of his comments, we really saw the crunch in 2015-17 and the reason was was the Budget Control Act came in in 2011, and Congress failed to uh, reach a budget deal in 2012, resulting in sequestration, which was an arbitrary kind of haircut of the U.S. defense budget. And U.S. defense planners said, okay, we need to take some risk somewhere. So they took it in basically training and sustainment and maintenance because they thought they could park that risk there. And if we remember at that time, we were trying to withdraw from the Middle East um, and trying to kind of, the U.S. was trying to reset its defense defense um, programs, but Crimea happened and ISIS happened, so they all of a sudden had to respond to that. So at the exact same time they were trying to draw down and reset, they actually had to mm. flood out their uh, forces again. So this resulted in them taking increasing risk essentially within a lot of the uh, their services that really hit home in 2015 to 2017. And then just a final point, Deputy of Secretary Mattis when he was appointed Secretary of Defense was we're going to have two or three budgets here where we basically devote all of our resources and time and effort into repairing readiness of the Air so Force. So they started to turn it around then? They have, yeah, and that was a real uh, big turning point that uh, Secretary Mattis came in and he directed that. Uh, one of his signature uh, sort of uh, uh, memos was to bring up um, the readiness rates of U.S. aircraft to around 80%. Um, some have reached that, uh, specific fighters like the F-16, but others won't ever reach that. And this is kind of goes to that previous point, something like the F-15. Um, so the F-15 is really old, um, 30, 40 years. It's been, using, it's been used quite a bit in all the conflicts I mentioned. The U.S. Department of Defense in the last budget papers it submitted basically said, the F-15 will never reach the readiness goal just because the airframe requires so much downtime to repair and, and to that it'll just permanently be kind of in the 30 or 40 or 50 mark or wherever it would sit. So th those sort of examples show you that the, some of the services are grappling with this aging program while trying to simultaneously spend money to modernize it, by the way, by and still using all that equipment at the same time. Mm. But the U.S. is still by far the biggest and most sophisticated military is it that the nature of the threat has changed that China's been investing in advanced military systems 
that make it harder for um, a big military force to counter? Um, yes. So we, uh, China has made specific investments that really counter the way the United States has operated its military over the last 30 years. Um, so we know in the Gulf, first Gulf War and the Iraq War in 2003 are really kind of prime examples of that, which is essentially the United States would concentrate mass amounts of forces on cities uh, near where the conflict has happened, and then they would strike at a time of their choosing with overwhelming force. And you saw them achieve air control over Iraq and Afghanistan and, 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 a, and a series of these conflicts and also over Syria when they were intervening there and uh, in Libya as well. Um, and so what China has done is they have invested in a series of cruise missiles and ballistic missiles, both short and long range, that can basically target these large concentrated bases. Um, and if there were to be a conflict, there's some debate about this, but these open wide bases are very vulnerable to salvos of Chinese missiles that could destroy a large number of aircraft on the ground if there was no warning of a conflict to take place, for example. So China's really invested in sort of the the very way the U.S. has set up its military posture in the region. Okay. I'm going to open it up to questions, but I just want um, – I'll ask Ash one more before I do, so think of your – but, you know, there's a lot of um, – you know, we essentially – this report is saying that we need to prepare overtly for a conflict with China, um, and so there's very strong language around that. and. Does that come at a cost to the bilateral relationship with China when you're talking about devoting all your resources to countering a threat from them in the region when they would say, but we're not threatening the region? Um, and does that come at a cost for national security if we damage that relationship? So a couple of points there. Firstly, I, I certainly hope that those of us in think tank land saying this doesn't jeopardize our national security, and that's clearly not our objective. But the we're not calling on the government, nor do I think it would be wise for us to designate China as Australia's strategic competitor, much least um, uh, an aggressor or a threat. Now, there are those in the Trump administration, like allies like Australia, to be much more frank and pointed in their characterization of what China's power means in the Indo-Pacific. That's not what we're calling for. Australia's approach is already a sensible one, which is to uh, speak quietly and prepare for worst case scenarios as best that we can. Uh, what we're arguing in this report is that there are a lot more things that we could be doing and we could be doing them in more strategic ways. And we ought to also be much more sensitive and, and, and understanding of why it is that there's a sense of urgency about all of this. Um, part of that is, uh, is the story of Chinese foreign policy, of Chinese assertiveness in the region, of China's uh, interference in Australia's democracy and so forth. That's a story that's well understood or increasingly well understood, and that's not the story that we're focused on here in this report. We're focused on the other side, and we're focused not on this idea that the United States is simply a declining power, and therefore we need to pack up and go home. Asia is China is the resident power. What we're saying here is the United States, and it's clear, I think, in its most recent strategic documents, is trying to focus or wants to maintain um, a, a conventional deterrence vis-a-vis -vis China. In fact, and we haven't spoken about this, um, if it doesn't maintain conventional deterrence, the only other options are nuclear escalation, and that's of no one's interests. It's not clear that the United States would ever take that path, which would make a strategy premised on that um, quite uh, incredible. But let's remember that what we're talking about here is maintaining an equilibrium. That should not be 
inflammatory clearly is not something that Beijing is going to welcome Australians doing. Now, of course, when we start to talk about um, Australian um, uh, land-based strike, whether that's the sea control or sea denial, or whether that's something that should be deployed into the region, um, they're the sorts of conversations that cause uh, multiple countries in the region to be concerned about Australia's land. Um, but Australia needs, I think, to realise that it is both in a position of increasing vulnerability and has something that it can do about that. It's increasing vulnerability because of China's behaviour and America's position, but it can do something about it because we do have good cachet with our like-mindedness in the region. And as some of the charts and, and discussion in this report shows, Australia and Japan together, albeit with Japan picking up the bigger slice of the pie, uh, contribute or have in their inventory roughly half of the stock of the submarines, attack submarines, or roughly half the stock of anti-submarine aircraft that the United States has. And our two countries don't have global strategic interests. Our two countries can be more focused mm. and can work together with others in the region to maintain that balance. So, so a long-winded response to your question, but yes, China is not going to be encouraging of us in the strategy, but no, we don't need to designate them as a threat in order to pursue it. Okay. I'll open it up to questions. a couple of points on that and Kelly if you want to throw in any budget dumping um, I don't think we can and certainly we're not calling on the United States to spend more in defense I think if the last election has taught us anything and the way the Obama administration behaves as its global um, uh, priorities and global interests and call on allies to do more burden sharing I think it's clear that that is not an argument that has legs in Washington even though there are some amongst the defense force of, uh, or defense hawks rather in Congress that would dearly like to make that argument. I think Tilly's points, and she's looked in detail at the uh, public opinion polls in Washington, show that although there are there is a turn in the way people view China as a competitor, when you ask them how they would like to spend their money and what would they like to cut in order to spend more on defense, as was done in some opinion polls, uh, they have no answer. They're divided, they don't want to spend more, they don't want to accept a greater deficit. 
even if they don't think the deficit is a problem right now, something that could change very quickly. So we're not making that argument. Um, I think the argument that we would make is first for Washington to take a more strategic look at its own global priorities. There are cheaper ways to ISIS in the Middle East than using you know, fifth generation fighters and advanced bombers over there. That is not necessarily required by the threat that is posed in the region and certainly it's not a sustainable model for tending to what is ultimately a much less severe strategic interest of the United States. Now, um, there's a whole range of reasons and Again, the port is already so big, we didn't go into all of them. There's a whole range of reasons why I think the United States continues uh, to be drawn to the Middle East. It has to do with the cachet of regional governments and allies and partners there and so forth. So I'm non we're under no illusions that it will be difficult to, to change that. But I think that that's where we ought to start. We ought to start. And I think the thinking in the Pentagon on this, of maintaining um, their own existing... In, in investments in regional security in the Middle East and asking those allies to shoulder the load further. And we've seen that in Europe and in Asia. We haven't yet seen Australia be asked to cut a check or pay more for American facilities there uh, on our continent. It may happen. Um, there is something ultimately, though, um, in impossible in the political climate in Washington now for allies in other countries to ask the United States taxpayer to continue to underwrite their security, and we've seen the, polit the political implications and financial implications of that, of that model. I don't think that that will work. Mm, I might just add a really quick point on public opinion. Um, the US general population has been quite receptive to kind of political discourse on this issue. So, I mean, maybe five years ago, public opinion on wanting to raise defense spending was quite a lot higher than it was now. I think once, um, People were hearing about, you know, the crisis in military readiness. They were, they were kind of convinced that during the Obama administration, the defense budget hadn't really been handled properly, um, and opinion was showing, yes, there is appetite to increase it. Once you get um, President Trump in power, a substantial deal made in 2018 to raise the defense budget, public opinion kind of saw that and was like, okay, that's enough, and has kind of bottomed out after that. So. Public opinion has been quite receptive to actual ebbs and flows within the defense budget itself, and seeing as it is at a high point in terms of the past, um, you know, five years, public opinion in terms of increasing it has kind of gone down. The area of interest lately has expanded from Asia Pacific to Indo Pacific. On that basis, what do you think would be the approach, uh, the response from India if they were asked to join Japan, US and Australia in the putative containment of China through water navy? It's a good question and I think it sort of goes to how the quadrilateral security dialogue would factor into some of what you're talking about in the report. You know, Brendan or Ashley, did you want to? <coughs> We, uh, I know we concentrate on Japanese and Australian and American allies in our aggregated um, capability sort of diagram that we had up there, but we could have easily included India's um, in there in that diagram. Uh, we didn't for a few reasons, just that um, the state of the relationship, even though the quad is trying to revive itself yet again, uh, we felt that the relationship, sort of the, the, the trilateral between Japan, United States and Australia was more advanced than the quad and it just made more sense to look at 
a limited number of countries rather than trying to expand it out, but it could easily be added um, to that to that diagram um, in the future. Uh, Ash, I don't know if you want to say something about the slide. Yeah, yeah points. I mean, first, the, the recommendations about, and, and the reason for showing what Australia and Japan have relative to the United States in terms of certain military capabilities is, is to make the simple point that uh, this is not a ludicrous proposition. Australia does have equities and it can invest those and they are significant when you stack them up even against the United States in certain areas. That's not the case with regards to fifth generation fighters, but it is the case uh, and, and is projected rather to be the case in other areas, uh, in particularly in, in countries uh, where Australia does have such. But um, more broadly, I think the reason, Lisa, we didn't include the Quad, um, we didn't include India in this, is I think the jury is very much out as to whether or not India would have ultimately the incentive to act east in act east in the crisis whether or not its strategic interests are really implicated to the same degree as japan's are in a first island chain contingency that's because i think i think that that's been demonstrated by the timidity with which uh, india has pursued multilateral arrangements let's remember modi's speech back at shangri-la a couple of years ago which was certainly not forward-leaning with regards to its characterization of of the challenge posed by China in the regional security environment. Moreover, India is bounded by its own um, security problems in South Asia and therefore is more encumbered uh, than Australia is, clearly to act uh, outside of its own region. Australia has the dubious luxury of a more benign uh, geostrategic environment, um, albeit one that is contingent on what happens up there. So for those reasons, we haven't looked at India, but of course, any collective balance, in particular one over time, would need to draw in other countries in the region. That's not to talk about formal alliance structures. That's not at all what we're suggesting in this report. But simply, if countries like Vietnam were to invest much more in their anti-air capabilities, if Malaysia and the Philippines were to have a much more effective um, uh, patrol force and, and into a, sorry, much more to be able to much more effectively patrol their waters to deny Chinese presence or Chinese aggression in their waters over time or to be able to use and work with other allies in terms of their ISR. These would all enable um, countries in the region to look after their own interests and to do so in a collective way that would prevent or provide resistance towards Chinese adventurism were that to happen. And the objective of all of this, again, I is to maintain the challenge. observation and one question. <coughs> uh, observation is that getting out of the Middle East is made harder the fact that when you go into the Middle East you are often about protecting lives, Australians, whereas in the Indo-Pacific you're protecting interests, including nebulous academic things like sovereignty. Uh, the question is perhaps a desperate search for some good news. INF. Uh, do you think that the acquisition and deployment of intermediate range missiles by the US or others in the Indo-Pacific could make 
much of a difference, essentially doing anti-access area denial out, um, is that a way of it making a real difference to the balance in the future? Yeah, I'll take that tricky question, Doug. Um, <laughs> as per usual, um, I will t I will approach it from a, a slightly different angle, and it's connected much more with the budget. Um, so I know there's been a, I think the jury's still out in terms of whether, and I think the debate will go to whether you need uh, missiles that can are purely affect sea control around the first island chain or whether you need missiles with the range to strike targets within China. And I think that the implications of both those things are uh, quite different, and I think that the debate will evolve in that way. But let me bring it back. One of the reasons I think that form of land-based strike, and I'm not advocating the range, but some sort of mobile land-based strike makes sense, particularly for the United States, and I think if Australia to acquire its own, is is economic reasons. So the most expensive um, places to put offensive strike missiles that would engage uh, landing forces or, or uh, naval vessels or other, other aircraft, all that kind of thing, is on uh, naval vessels and aircraft. They're very expensive platforms to build at present. Um, so the difference between putting some sort of strike payload on an F-35 versus a land-based kind of mobile platform makes a heck of a lot of sense in terms of just pure defense economics. And being able to kind of start to change this cost capability curve, which is really creeping up on Australia and the United States. There's an argument there. My personal opinion is I don't think we need um, INF range missiles that are able to strike targets within China. I think we have to think about what is actually will deter China from issuing a fait accompli, and I'm not convinced that we need to range targets within China, but merely deny their ability to seize territory if they so choose. Um, and that could come in the form of short range or, or, or shorter range mobile systems that we're able to disperse around the region at short notice that then aren't necessarily forward deployed um, in territories like Guam or Japan or those types of locations. So, um, yeah, that's what I would say. One point to just worth yeah. adding to that is also that let's assume the United States does take that path and is still deploying land-based INF range missiles in Asia as it is indeed now appearing to pursue mm. that. It's not clear that the United States has the industrial base to manufacture a whole lot more missiles at this point in time. In fact, it's clear that they don't. And it's clear that in the absence of being able to meet current requirements for platform-based uh, munitions of a whole variety of, uh, of, of types, um, they're already if they're already if the United States is already unable to meet those requirements, then expanding the number of vantage points and platforms from which you uh, will base missiles uh, will require major changes to the U.S. Uh, munitions production capability itself. One of the points that we touch on in this report, again, as a, as a, as a point for further analysis, really, is investigating whether uh, it makes sense for Australia to get into the business, um, perhaps with another partner like Japan, perhaps independently, of under license manufacturing munitions in Australia. These are mm. things that we haven't considered for a long time, but it's not necessarily um, 
say. It's not necessarily something which we oughtn't consider as a way of, even if we don't base it in Australia, providing land-based, uh, sorry, forward-based munitions manufacturing capabilities in Australia that can help to offset some of the demand in the US uh, defence industry. Marvin Matthews, uh, ex-Deepa. In terms of averting crisis and collective defence, how much attention is being paid to the threat of cyber attacks, uh, mm. both in terms of critical infrastructure or perhaps even the launching of missiles, and where does that fit into your report? Yeah, full disclosure, it's kind of funny, I was just thinking on the stage here, this report's a little bit out of fashion because we've <laughs> uh, kind of reverted to old school just trying to um, analyze conventional military power. And that was very purposeful on our part. Um, Ashen, and at one point when we were writing the chapter on um, conventional military power, you can just add on, we didn't cover space, cyber forces, um, things of that nature. Uh, and so it just becomes dreadful. So we try to divert really about what conventional power um, is. And, and it's actually, because it's a little out of fashion, I think it actually um, can say something new about where we're at. But one thing I'll say on the cyber part is that um, through the research, it's quite interesting. So we have had, if you, if you level up the def about defense budgets, we've actually just been adding on new things that the military has to account for over time without necessarily massively expanding the budget. So for instance, uh, uh, the Space Force is a perfect example of that. The Air Force has to not only um, buy all those new planes I was talking about, they're buying a new bomber, uh, they are buying uh, F-35s, they can only buy 60F because it's so expensive. So one of the things I didn't say just then was that they, at the rate in which they're buying F-35s, the average age of the U.S. Air Force will never go under 29 years of age by the time all of the fifth generation fighters are in. So you'll start to be in this cycle. You can see by the buying power of the front. And getting back to the cyber, one of the other reasons for that is, is because we're adding on additional things. So now the budget has to account for cyber. So every time you buy a military piece of equipment, there's another added cost because you have to build in, uh, make sure you're s there's no cyber vulnerabilities in that becomes so much more complex. Um, so that's that. I know we're, there's an, a whole offensive cyber piece to that, but we've, we've sort of, um, you know, that's a whole other paper, basically. You could strap on for another week, yeah. So I'll just check what time, um, maybe time for two more questions. Is that, um, I don't mind watching. Are there a couple more questions? I'm not sure what I've strung it down well, though, thank you. Um, I'm not quite sure what's in the final report, but you haven't really covered Russia at all. And uh, one of the things that exercises my concern quite a lot is the, what appears to be a much closer affinity between China and Russia from a strategic point of view. Both leaders have made all sorts of claims about how much they love the other. But um, although China has the greatest uh, manpower capacity and obviously economic capacity, Russia has the skill to develop very, very sophisticated weapons, um, even on the bombing side, for example, their Tu-166 uh, outpaces and outranges uh, the B-1, the B-2 and the B-52. And we've seen in the last few weeks uh, joint exercises up in Northeast Asia and elsewhere between Chinese and Russian surveillance bombers. We've seen as uh, deployed down as far as Beer in West New Guinea. Uh, these things seem to me to be a worry. 
and uh, I would hope that uh, if you haven't covered it in your present report, perhaps the next version coming out might also consider the implications of an accord of some sort between Russia and China and what that means for us. Did you think about that in the report? Was that part of the framework or...? No, look, it, it wasn't for a couple of reasons. But look, I take that I take that observation uh, absolutely uh, that we ought to be concerned by any any sense of a growing alignment, much least much less military um, alignment between Russia and China and activities that advance that in the Indo-Pacific or indeed elsewhere. Um, I think that probably you could say points to the fact that China is not only a country that is able to pose operational problems itself in the first island chain and beyond, but if it were to dislocate its capacity for action with Russia, it indeed would pose an even more formidable threat. So in a sense, it would amp up the sorts of issues that we're worried about here, although I, I would say it's not clear that Russia would actually partake in a fait complete strategy to seize and hold uh, geographically important territory in the first island chain. But your point is, is, is very valid. And one of the things that we do ar argue for in, in the report is sort of more exercises that try to disperse, um, to move warfighting war significant amounts of material across the Pacific rapidly um, in an undetected way, to bluff, um, to coordinate with allies in the region in doing all of the above. These sorts of exercises, which were commonplace during the Cold War, and indeed had Russia as the objective for signaling and for deterrence purposes, are the sorts of things uh, th that we think really ought to focus um, the minds of our defense planners now in terms of thinking about what other sorts of activities and exercises and so forth we could be doing here in the Indo-Pacific to strengthen uh, our capacity to deter and to signal our resolve vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. One more question, John. Thanks. John Keogh from the Australian Financial Review. W with Australia's participation in the Middle East, is there some quid pro quo benefit we get in return from the US to think that because we participate in the Middle East, they've got our back in our region, and if we were to rebalance some of our resources away from the Middle East towards our Indo-Pacific region closer, would that be put at risk? I think it's clear that um, our long-standing support of the United States, not just in the Middle East, but globally over decades, um, has been both, uh, has been motivated by the fact that we both share interest in the order um, that drew those operations, that's clear. And second, that we do indeed here in Australia receive uh, an alliance trade-off, an alliance uh, 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 payoff rather, not trade-off, an alliance payoff for diplomatic support of the United States, particularly in, in coalition operations where they may not require uh, or where they may seek to, uh, to, to, to uh, be used, but they may not require necessarily our military capabilities, but they do require that diplomatic support and cover. So there has been that sort of an arrangement. Now, we're not suggesting that the Australian government should do nothing to support the United States at any you know, in any other regional contingency outside of our near abroad. That's not the suggestion here. These are not absolutes. And as, as Doug said earlier, extracting ourselves from the Middle East would be a costly and timely exercise. We wouldn't be fully extracting ourselves in any case. We do have um, permanently stationed forces uh, and uh, over there, um, some of which we would need to retain interests as well as for personnel protection in the short term. There is not an easy way to just leave instantly, but we certainly could be in a position, or we certainly are in a position where we can say no to certain things. 
this particular um, uh, ask, which is now on the table, in order to safeguard maritime supply lines that are, frankly, only being jeopardized because of uh, a threat which is unacceptable from Iran that was produced by a reversion from diplomacy by the Trump admi administration that was unwise. That is a problem that can be unwound, we think. Um, we're not looking, and this report clearly doesn't go into great detail there, but the specter of a conflict in Iran has already reversed a significant portion of the drawdown of forces in the Middle East that was implemented late last year under the, under the rubric of implementing the National Defense Strategy. We've already seen a return of a carry strike route through the Persian Gulf, seen a return of other high-end military assets over there for the what if we are at war with Iran scenario. So it's having real impact on the ability of the Pentagon to take a break, to focus, to rebuild readiness, to focus on exercises to prioritize. We oughtn't be uh, advancing that problem. It's a problem for the United States as, as it is it a problem for us. So I think there we ought to have some room to maneuver. I understand that it's a diplomatically very de delicate situation, um, but saying no is not an absolute no, but it's certainly a possible no. For, for your time tonight, um, thanks Ashley, Shelley, Brendan. Um, and look, we're, we're based at the University of Sydney, but events like this in Canberra and the quality of the questions and the, and the frankly, the, the passion that, that and concern that underlies them um, is why we chose to come down here tonight at a gathering for this report. This is precisely the audience for in front of, so thank you for coming out. The other thing I think you'll all appreciate is in the Q&A, the depth of the expertise, and as we got into some of the proper nouns, as it were, um, from um, uh, Brendan and Chile's observations in particular, really peering under the hood about particular facets of this report, uh, Tilly's uh, insights about uh, what's going on in American public opinion, the budget process in particular, how that intersects with congressional politics, and, and, um, and, and, and Brendan, that observation that at, at the current rate of procurement of 35, the average age of the American Air Force is going to stay 29 years of age uh, over, yeah, yeah. Um, that level of uh, uh, grit under the fingernails suffuses through the entire report, and I encourage you to read it. It's on our website live now. Um, and um, because it is precisely such a weighty document, uh, physical copies have not made it to tonight's event, but they'll be available uh, in the future as well. Um, thank you to everybody, and thank you if you could join me in thanking the panelists. Thank you so much, everybody.